The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, as you know by this point, today is Reformation Sunday. It is the Sunday prior to October 31, and it's on this Sunday every year that we commemorate and we remember what took place on October 31st. 1517. You're familiar, obviously, with the fact that it was that day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And for Luther, these were complaints about abuses that he saw in the church of his day, abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther, though he never intended to launch a revolution, that, that's exactly what happened. His, his complaints against medieval Roman Catholicism launched what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. It was really the greatest awakening that has ever occurred in church history. And for many years here at Maranatha, we have been celebrating this, we have had guest speakers here to speak on this issue. We actually watched the movie Luther uh, one year. We have spent many uh, years looking at the five solas as we just read them a few moments ago, as Dale did. We have looked at those one each year for a number of years. The solas really capture the heart and the essence of the Protestant Reformation. They, they capture for us the essence of the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, described in the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, for the glory of God alone, soli Deo gloria. So we've been studying for many years the solas. Last year, if you were here, we took some time to look at the role of the conscience in the Reformation, how a word-saturated conscience of Martin Luther compelled him to nail his 95 theses on the, wall, on the door and to stand against the false gospel in Roman Catholicism. And so for many years, we've been looking at this. This morning, I want to start something different uh, with you. Over the next few years, I want to uh, work through a little series that I've entitled Portraits of the Reformation. Uh, it's going to be about an eight to ten year series, so you'll have to... <laughs> Keep coming back this Sunday every year. You know that our standard practice here is biblical exposition. You know that typically what we do on a Sunday is we take a text and we work through it and we preach through it and we dissect it and we, we pull it apart and we bring some implications upon our life. That's our bread and butter. That's what we do week after week, verse by verse, chapter after chapter, we unpack the scriptures. This morning I want to do something a little bit different and I want to introduce you to one of the key personalities in the Reformation. I think there's biblical precedent for doing this. Joe read just a little while ago Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is marked before us. Speaking specifically to Hebrews chapter 11, but I think there's a principle there that as believers, we should look at the lives of those who have gone before us, and we should learn from them and imitate their faith. In fact, in the very next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. We're called 
to remember, in a sense, specifically there, speaking of uh, the pastors who have led us and shepherded us, but here there's a principle here that, that we can learn from those who have gone before us. And so, for the next few years, I want to introduce you to men like John Huss and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and Thomas Cranmer and Ulrich Zwingli and maybe even some women of the Reformation like Lady Jane Grey, who was the nine-day Queen of England. This morning, I want to introduce you to John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was the first English Reformer. In fact, he is called by one historian the first reformer of Christendom. He, he really is one of the first in church history who, who would lay the seeds that would eventually germinate in the full-blown Protestant Reformation. He was a pre-reformer. He was a precursor to the Reformation, a, a forerunner of it, because he was born about 200 years before the Reformation ever actually officially launched. His nickname was the morning star of the Reformation. He was called this because of the star that occurs very early in the morning, just before dawn, which heralds the coming of a new day. Maybe you've been out at night, late at night, past your bedtime. Or maybe you've been up very, very early in the morning and you've seen a, a star that's brighter than the others, a star that... Sometimes in the darkest part of the night, you wonder if the, the morning's ever going to come. One star shines brighter than the others. That is the morning star. It's actually the planet Venus. And it heralds the fact that dawn is coming. This is what Wycliffe was like. John Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation. He, he would be the first to give a glimmer of hope that the gospel was going to be recovered. He, he would be the first to give a glimmer of light that would penetrate the spiritual darkness that was hovering over England and the rest of Europe during this time. He was the first Englishman to recognize the authority and sufficiency of the scriptures. He was really the first Englishman to return to the pulpits of England a robust preaching of the Word of God. He was the first Englishman to restore the gospel to the church and to confront the false gospel of Rome. So monumental was his impact that after his death, 30 years after he died, he was declared to be a heretic. And 14 years later, after the Council of Constance had determined him to be a heretic, it was ordered that his, his body be dug up, burned, and his ashes thrown into the river swift. The belief was it would prevent any type of resurrection where Wycliffe could come back and haunt the Catholic Church. Thomas Fuller, a church historian, describes it. This way, He says, they burnt his bones to ashes and cast them into the swift, a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus the brook has conveyed his ashes into Avon, Avon into Severn, Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. They tried to eradicate him to the point of burning his remains. 
spread him into the water, which carried it literally around the world. And that is an illustrative of the fact that though they tried to remove his influence, his influence remains. So this morning, I want to introduce you to Wycliffe. And I need to first tell you a little bit of the landscape that was occurring in that day that he came upon the scene upon. And then I want to tell you a little bit about his life and his ministry and his teachings. And then I want to draw some implications for us, for ourselves today. I want to give you three points. We're not working through a passage of scripture this morning. It's more of just a seminar on the life of John Wycliffe. Three points. First is the dark landscape of medieval Christianity. If you're going to understand Wycliffe and you're really going to understand the Protestant Reformation, you really need to understand how corrupt the church was in the medieval ages. You need to understand the abuses that were taking place at that time, and you need to understand what it was like to live under medieval Christianity. It's hard for us. We're 500 years post this, and I don't think most of us can even fathom what it was like to live under the church in the 14th century. It was a time of great spiritual darkness. It was literally a bankrupt time spiritually. It was a deplorable time to live in pre-Reformation England. And one writer has well captured the essence of this time period when he says this, quote, when Wycliffe appeared on the world stage, the religious scene in England was as pitch black as a starless night. The gospel was buried under an avalanche of ignorance, superstition, priestcraft, and immorality. Sermons were filled with myths, fables, and empty traditions. Spiritual authority was determined not by scripture, but by the church fathers, church traditions, ecclesiastical councils, and the pope. From pulpits to pews, the church was filled with unconverted people who were unknowingly held captive in chains of unbelief, end quote. It was a dark time for the church. That's why it was called the Dark Ages, because there was little gospel light shining forth in the 14th century. And let me just kind of walk through some of the evidences of this, just, just so you can kind of have a picture of what it would have been like to live in this time. Let me just sample for you some of the things that would have, you would have experienced during these ages, the most serious issue during this time was the fact that the gospel the soul-crushing, sin-destroying good news of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin was covered by a host of church traditions, layer upon layer of outward ceremonies, all kinds of external religious practices and superstition and corruption and legalism was all added to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and people living in that day spent their lives performing ceremony after ceremony after ceremony in hopes of trying to earn salvation. There were hoops to jump through. There were sacraments to participate in. It was nothing short of salvation plus works. It's not that Rome did not believe in the gospel. It's not that Rome did not believe in faith and Christ and the, the gospel of 
grace. They believed in those things. They believed in the Bible, but they believed in those things plus their entire system. This was the issue. This was the problem. And, and so the treasure of the gospel, the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ was so obscured by Rome's excessive sacramentalism that it was hard to even perceive. It had been virtually lost. Added to this was the fact that rather than seeing Christ as the head of the church, Rome believed that the Pope was the head of the church. He was, in fact, the head of the world. And in that day, he was really one of the most powerful people on the earth. He was supreme and had more power than anyone in the world. What the Pope said is what happened. His decrees were law. And under this system, the belief was that the Pope and the priest essentially had the power to dispense grace. Think about that. The belief was that it was the Pope, the church, the priests who were God's tap by which grace was dispensed. And if you didn't come through them and the church, you couldn't get grace and forgiveness and salvation. Seven sacraments through which the Pope and the priests would supposedly administer God's grace. Number one was baptism. Number two was confirmation. Number three was the mass. Number four was penance. Number five was marriage. Number six was ordination. And number six was last rites. And if you wanted some forgiveness for your sin, if you wanted salvation, if you wanted God's grace in your life to, to remove the sin that separated from you, hit you from him, the only thing that you could do in those days essentially was to go to the priest and go to the pope for grace. Central to their entire system was the Mass. The Mass. And it was the Mass that the Roman Catholic Church taught that, that, that God's anger at sin would be appeased through. You, you couldn't be uh, free from God's wrath at your sin unless you engaged in the Mass. The, the Mass was where this grace that you so desperately needed was meted out. And if you were to walk into a Catholic church in that day, much the same today, the focus of that church would be the altar, not the pulpit, not the place where the word of God was unashamedly preached and boldly declared, not that it would have been the altar where the mass would be celebrated in what they called an unbloody sacrifice. It was an altar for a reason. Because it was believed that the way that you were to be forgiven in the Mass was to re-offer Christ as a sacrifice, to re-sacrifice Him on a regular basis, on a, on a daily basis. Anytime the Mass was performed, essentially what was taking place was Christ was being re-sacrificed for your sins. And the key to making this whole system work was the doctrine of transubstantiation. The belief that the, the bread and the wine were miraculously, by the power of the priest, transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. The belief was that they had the power to perform this miracle of transformation. And when the, the pope or the priest took the bread and lifted it up and said, this is my body, at that very moment, the, the bread was transformed into the actual literal body of Christ. 
He was re-sacrificed. If you were there in the audience, the way you received grace was looking upon that raised piece of bread. And believing that that was the actual body of Christ sacrificing right there for you to cover your sins. This is how a person was justified under Roman Catholicism. It was how you became a better person. It was a re-sacrificing of Christ on a regular basis to cover the sins that you continue to commit. And so justification, this is very important, was not a once-in-point-time event, which we believe it to be according to the Scriptures. It was a process. And you engage in the sacraments, and you went to Mass, and you did all the things that the Roman church said so that you could become more acceptable to God. It was a confusion of justification and sanctification. It was a melding of those two things together where we see a very clear distinction between those. Justification is a point-in-time act where you are declared righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ, but not in the Roman Catholic system. It's a process by which you make yourself better and you merit salvation. The problem was there were still sins that would have been needed to be confessed outside of the Mass. And so there was a confession, a confession that you were to um, participate in. You would go to your priest and you would confess the sins that were not yet covered by the Mass. And so he would probe you with questions trying to find out exactly where your heart and your mind was and trying to ask questions like, have you loved your relatives or friends more than God? Or have you complained about the weather? Really important things. The priests believed that they were making a person more and more justified. When in reality, what was happening was the people were becoming increasingly aware of their sin and brought under conviction of the sin as they were forced to confess all known sins. And, and I read this week about a woman in the 15th century by, by the name of Marjorie Kemp. And she said this, it, she, she left one confession so terrified of the damnation that such a sinner as she surely deserved that she began to see devils surrounding her, pawing at her, making her bite and scratch herself. This didn't alleviate sin. This brought greater conviction of sin. Added to this was that the Catholic Church taught that nobody would die righteous enough to have merited salvation on their own except the saints. There were only a few of them, and they would have had enough merit of their own to get into heaven uh, the first time, and yet most people would never arrive at that level of holiness. And so the way that you would be purged of those remaining sins after you died was, was to go to purgatory and there you would be cleansed and forgiven. It could take 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or a million years. And if the thought of a million years in purgatory was not enjoyable, you could accelerate your time in purgatory by having people buy indulgences. Indulgences were the, the system within the Catholic Church by which you could profit from the previous merit of the saints. Remember I said that they had enough merit to get into heaven. They actually had extra merit, and so that extra merit would be stored in the treasury of merit, and the only one with the keys to open that treasury of merit to give them to other people was the Pope, and so you would buy an indulgence. You would pay a price. You would give some money to the Catholic Church, and he would unlock the treasury of merit and grant to you the extra merit that you needed so you could fast-track yourself out of
There was the veneration of saints. Shrines all over Europe to saints with supposed relics, a tooth of this saint, a piece of the wood of the cross of Christ. Mary was to be venerated, prayed to. She was the way you got to Christ. You see, because Christ was seen as a terrifying judge, he was seen as unapproachable. And so the way you get to Christ is not directly, the way you get to Christ is through his mother, because who can resist their mother? And so Mary was the way that you got to Christ. She was to be prayed to and venerated, and it was believed that she herself was sinless. That's what the Immaculate Conception means. She became seen as a co-redeemer. And you add all of that to the fact that the services in the Catholic Church were in Latin and no one could understand them. And the Bible was also in a language that could not be understood by the people. In fact, it was illegal to translate the Bible into the language of the people. In fact, if you were caught in possession of a Bible, it was a capital offense and the belief was that if you translated the language of the Bible into the language of the people, that they might misinterpret it. And so that needs to stay with the, the, the hands of the Pope and the priest. And even that, they wanted to make sure that they had massive control over all of that. So it was illegal to get the hands of the people on the Bible. Perhaps the darkness of this whole time period is best illustrated in a certain time period known as the Babylonian captivity of the church. Very interesting that, um, of course, the Pope was to be headquartered in Rome. The Pope was seen as the Holy Father of the church, and the city of Rome was seen to be the mother of the church. But something happened in 1305 that's very interesting. A Frenchman was elected to be the next Pope. The Ark Bishop of Bordeaux was chosen to be the next pope, but there was a problem. Instead of moving to Rome as he was supposed to do, he decided he really liked France, southern France, and so he decided to stay in Avignon. Well, he was pope for a while, then he stepped down. Another one was uh, to come after him. The next pope was to be elected was also French, and he stayed in southern France because they really liked France. And that happened again and again and again, 70 years. In fact, 72 years, the papacy was away from Rome, hence the term the Babylonian captivity of the church, because Israel was captive in Babylon for 70 years, and so there was this similarity they believed between that and their situation, and so it's called the Babylonian captivity of the church. Well, that didn't sit well with Rome. And so in 1378, the College of the Cardinals decided to end this by electing an Italian pope and to guarantee that the pope would remain in Rome. So they did. They elected the next pope. He was an Italian. He was there in Rome. The problem was the previous pope, the Frenchman, wouldn't resign. He stayed in France. And so now you've got two popes. <laughs> Who's the real pope? Well, this went on for a little while. And um, 
a council was formed to, to deal with this problem. The problem was not sustainable because you can't have two popes when one of them is supposed to be the real one in charge of the entire church. And so a council was formed and they decided to depose both existing popes and elect a new one. And they did that. And yet there was another problem. The previous two popes refused to step down. <laughs> now you've got three popes. It's known as the papal schism. 36 year period of multiple popes. And it illustrates the fact that there was a crisis of authority in the church. Who's in charge? Is the pope in charge? Are the councils in charge? If the pope's in charge, which pope? So all of this, all of this illustrates what was going on in 14th century England. And aren't you glad we don't live back then? This is what it would have been like. This was the landscape into which God injected a man by the name of John Wycliffe. That brings us to point number two. Is the extraordinary ministry of John Wycliffe or the significant ministry of John Wycliffe. And I, I want to show you what, what God did in raising up this man. We don't worship men, so just be clear, we're not here to worship John Wycliffe, but obviously we can learn a lot from what God did through this man. Wycliffe was born in northern England in a little village called Yorkshire around 1330. We don't know much about his early years because there's no records of his early years, but we do know that at age 16, he left home for Oxford and he began his studies there. He was a good student, uh, but shortly into his time in Oxford, he had to take a break as the school shut down because of the, the plague, the bubonic plague, the black death that, that began to, to go across all of Europe. Some historians believe that up to half of Europe's population was destroyed and killed in this wave of the Black Plague. He was away for a while. He came back, graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1356. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1361, and he completed his doctorate of theology in 1372 and became a, a teaching professor at Queen's College at Oxford. And during his time there, he became known as one of the greatest thinkers of his age. He was a great philosopher and theologian. He was an exceptional teacher. In fact, I was reading this week that many of the other professors who taught at Oxford would actually come and sit in his lectures and listen to him teach because he was such an engaging and gifted teacher. He was also a great preacher. And in 1374, the king of England, recognizing this, appointed him to be the pastor of a church, a little church in Lutterworth. He arrived there in 1374. It was actually near Oxford. So what he was able to do was teach at Oxford during the week, and then he was able to preach at the church in Lutterford on the weekends. And during this time, he became known as a great preacher. Powerful robust preaching from the word of God with power, with authority, 
with the conviction and unction of the Holy Spirit, with boldness, with energy, with enthusiasm. In fact, never before had any preaching like this been heard in the entire region of England. He was really the first faithful preacher of the Word of God as we know of in England. He began to study. And the more he studied and the more he engaged with Catholic Church, the more he realized how far from Scripture they had gone. So I want to give you three categories of areas that he really began to address through his writings and through his preaching. They're not on the slide, so you can just kind of listen and write them down. Three areas uh, that he clashed with the traditional teaching of the church. Uh, The first one is the church itself. And as Wycliffe began to study and began to preach and began to dig more and more into the scriptures, he became, came to see how the Pope was misusing his power and had put himself in a position of authority that he really did not belong. And so he came to the conviction and boldly preached against the papacy, saying that it's the scripture and the scripture alone Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. No pope has that authority. No ecclesiastical council has that authority. No church tradition has that authority. It is the word of God alone from Christ himself that was the authority in the church. He was reading verses like Ephesians 1, 22, which says that he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That's speaking of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says Christ is also the head of the body, the church. And so Wycliffe was very adamant about this. It's Christ and his word alone that is the authority of the church, not the Pope. In fact, he even got to the point where he called, as many of the reformers did, the Pope the Antichrist. Uh, That didn't go over very well. (laughs) It's not how you win friends and influence people. And so Pope Gregory XI condemned Wycliffe. He issued five bulls, uh, five papal bulls, five edicts against Wycliffe, citing 19 errors, and he called him the master of errors and ordered him to come to Rome to face charges. He didn't go. Do you blame him? Not only that, not only did he condemn the authority structure within the Roman Catholic Church, he identified the true church not by its organizational structure. He identified the true church by the elect and those who were truly redeemed. This was, this was revolutionary for that day. It was a radical view because the belief in that day was anyone who was in the visible church, anyone who showed up to a, to a mass was a part of the, the church. You just engaged the system. You just participated in its structure. You just engaged in the religious structure that they had put in place. And he comes along and says, no, the church is the invisible church. The true church are not those who attend sit in pews, and go through the religious ritual, the true church, the invisible church, are those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Place their faith and trust in Christ. They are the elect. They are those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're alive spiritually. They've been irresistibly drawn by Christ. 
repented of their sins, they placed their trust in Christ alone, that person and that person alone is a part of the true church. This only furthered the conflict between Wycliffe and Rome. There's a second area that he really addressed. It was the mass. I explained a little bit to you what the mass was and how they believed it worked. Wycliffe, as he studied the word, he came to realize that this whole doctrine of substantiation, transubstantiation, was the building block of their system. And so he believed that the scriptures specifically address this. He did believe in a real presence of Christ in the elements, but he, he completely denied the fact that the bread and the wine change into the literal body and blood of Christ. He spoke very adamantly about this, against this. He wrote books on this and pamphlets on this. He preached sermons against this. He went back constantly to the book of Hebrews, which says that Christ was sacrificed once for all. Hebrews 7.27 says, We do not need daily those like priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once, To bear the sins of many will appear a second time. This is a false gospel. He called it a different gospel, and that's what it is. To re-sacrifice Christ is to not trust in the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. To deny the fact that when Christ said it is finished, it was literally finished. The work was accomplished. So he began to preach out boldly against the Mass. Even those who were close to him at Oxford, who had once been on the same page with him, felt like he had gone too far. And so on one day, in one of his classes, an officer of the university showed up and said, you're fired. Ironically, he was teaching on the Lord's Supper. He finished his lecture, packed his belongings, and never returned to the classroom. But it was God's providence, because there was a third area that Wycliffe was convinced about that needed to be addressed, and it was the scriptures. So first of all was the church, second of all was the mass, third of all was the scriptures, and Wycliffe was thoroughly convinced that the scriptures belong in the hands of the people. He was absolutely convinced that the scripture contains the clear gospel. He saw in the scriptures the importance of Christ alone for the way of salvation. He saw in the scriptures the clear teaching on the nature of the church. And he saw in scriptures the belief that it ought to be read by all people, not just the priests. So Wycliffe wanted to see the scriptures translated into English. As I said, this put them at odds with the Roman system. They 
prohibited people from reading the scriptures for themselves, as I said, because they didn't want them to supposedly misinterpret it, and they wanted to maintain some level of control over the minds of the people. And so think about this. In that day, you could live your entire life without ever seeing the scriptures. You could live your entire life without ever reading a copy of God's word for yourself. And so Wycliffe was determined to change that. And he set out an enormous project. It is the thing that he is most well known for. It was a monumental task. And what he did is he decided to translate the entire scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, into English. And what's interesting about this is he actually didn't have the best resources. All he had was the Latin Bible. Erasmus had not put together his Greek New Testament, so he didn't yet have original sources or documents. He didn't have the Hebrew Old Testament documents, and he didn't have the Greek New Testament documents. All he had was a Latin Vulgate, and so the best he could do was to translate the Latin into English, and that's exactly what he did. Now, later, William Tyndale came along, and he translated the scriptures into English using the original Greek and Hebrew, but Wycliffe didn't have that opportunity, and so he took the Latin. Vulgate. And he assembled a group of people around him and he worked tirelessly to get this translated in English. And in 1380, the very first English Bible ever was produced. Now the problem is how do you get it in the hands of the people? This was pre Gutenberg. So there was no printing press yet. And so in order to get the English Bible into the hands of the people, he pulled together a bunch of scribes, and they hand-copied hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of the English Wycliffe Bible. I was reading this week that one scribe working full-time with a quill took 10 months to produce one Bible. There's still a number of them in existence, which tells us just how prolific this work was. This didn't sit well with Roman Catholic Church. In fact, listen to what the church said of this work. And I quote, By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar. And they are more available to lay and even to women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. On November 17, 1382, he was summoned before a synod at Oxford and officially excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He was summoned to Rome to appear to stand trial for his work. But on December 28, 1384, he suffered a stroke and died three days later on December 31, 1384. As I said earlier, 30 years later at the Council of Constance in 1414, he was determined to be a heretic on 260 different counts. And 14 layers later, his body was dug up, burned, and his ashes cast into the swift river. 
that's remarkable, is his work continued. There were a group of men whom he had begun to train. They're called the Lollards. You ever heard of them? The Lollards were a group of men that came alongside Wycliffe, and they were called the Lollards in a pejorative way because the word means mumblers. That's what the Catholic Church thought of these preachers of the gospel with a Wycliffe Bible. Just mumblers, nothing to say. They believed in the authority of the word. They believed in the sufficiency of the gospel to transform lives. And Wycliffe had trained them and equipped them. After his death, hundreds of them went out into the, the countryside of, of England and began preaching the gospel with a Wycliffe Bible in one hand. Because of that, many of them were arrested, tried, and burned at the stake preaching the gospel from the Bible. It was the work of one man. We don't celebrate him, but we celebrate what God did through him. And so let me give you here a third point as we draw things to a close here. The ongoing effect of Wycliffe's work. You say, so what? This is 21st century. That's long past. That's history. Let me give you some examples of the way that this still impacts us today. First is the English translation of the Bible. I would suppose that most of you here this morning have a Bible in your hands. And I would suppose that most of them are not in Latin. And I would suppose that most of us have a phone in our pocket with a Bible app on it. And I wonder if Wycliffe could have ever seen the day when every single believer would carry a copy of the Word of God and have it accessible at their fingertips. I'm not sure you could have ever envisioned that day. We have English Bibles on our shelves. We have English Bibles in multiple versions on our shelves. And so there's a sense in which Reformation Day ought to be Bible Appreciation Day, right? I mean, do you realize what you're holding in your hands? Do you realize People died to get that book translated in a language you could read. Maybe a better question is, are you reading it for yourself? It's one thing to go to church and hear sermons, and it's one thing to listen to it. It's another thing to sit down and open the word of God and let it penetrate your heart. So I ask you this morning, can you say with the psalmist, as he said in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. 
Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, verse 10, they, speaking of the scriptures, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Can you say that? Is that book that you hold in your hand that you say you love, is it more precious to you than your Instagram account? Or your Facebook likes and notifications? Is it more precious to you than your favorite Netflix show? There's a second implication I think that's critical for us to consider. It is that we have the ability to directly confess our sin to God. We have the ability to directly confess our our sin to God. You don't have to sit in a confessional booth and talk to a priest to get your sins forgiven. You don't have to climb stairs on your knees in Rome to try to earn God's favor. You don't have to attend mass. You don't have to go to some links to touch some relic or, or practice the sacraments to get your sins forgiven. You can go to Christ. you're here today and you have known Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not because you did any of that. It's because you have free access to the Lord Jesus Christ and you can go to him and you can confess your sin to him and he can uh, ask him for forgiveness and he will grant you the work of the grace in your heart. He and he alone will do that. It's not by works. It's all by grace. It's all by faith. It's all by the gift of Jesus Christ who finished the work at Calvary for us. And if you're here today and you're trying to still figure out how do you get to God, it's not going to be through any of those external systems. It's going to be only as you place your faith and trust in Christ. Romans 4 verse 5 says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You understand that? You place your faith and trust in Christ, and he credits to you his righteousness because what's credited to him is your sin. That is the gospel. And that's what was uncovered in the Reformation. Thirdly, another implication of this is listening to faithful biblical preaching. If you've heard a sermon lately that has faithfully expounded the word of God, it's partly due to Wycliffe and the Reformation and those who have gone before us who, who believe that Christ is most honored when the word is preached. And so anytime you hear a faithful biblical message, anytime you hear sound exposition, whether it's from this pulpit or from something on the internet or whether you go to another church which faithfully preaches the word, it's a byproduct of the Reformation. So, beloved, these are massive implications. Does the Reformation matter? It matters. It matters massively because what we stand for as a church, we're standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before. And much of what you love and much of what you believe and much of what you stake your life upon is because of the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, you'll have to come back for part two in a year. (laughs) Father, 
we thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible kindness to us in giving us men and women who have gone before us, who have staked their lives on the authority of your word, who have faithfully studied it to mine its depths, to recover for us the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. We thank you for the irresistible grace of God that has penetrated our hearts and drawn us to yourself. Lord, thank you that we don't have to earn our way to you. Thank you that we don't need to try and do enough things to get ourselves acceptable to you. Thank you that we don't have to jump through a number of religious hoops to finally get you to accept us. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his atoning death, his atoning sacrifice. And thank you that in him, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So Lord, we praise you for these things. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.